Hi, Enzo. Thank you so much for coming uh, onto this podcast. Our, uh, you know, we, we know each other uh, way back. You know, he was actually my neighbor, just so you guys know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have some very interesting, you know, funny encounters, um, both of us. So I'm going to just read a little bit about him and his bio here. So you're born in Uruguay um, and has since lived in um, Paraguay. I feel like I'm being a poet right now. Sorry. <laughs> they, they rhyme for a reason. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and he's also lived in the Canary Islands from Germany to the UK. And now he's living in Norway for the last nine years. Um, he has a degree in international trade and languages, as well as a master in higher education studies. His main expertise is, is in internationalization of education and has worked for many years recruiting international students and helping institutions become more international. He currently works as an implementer for an open source software project, supporting ministries of health in African and Latin American countries. He also, ha uh, he also holds presentations and workshops about cross-cultural awareness and coping with culture shock for companies and organizations. Wow. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So help me unpack because, you know, I, I, I literally meet Enzo sometimes on the, on the tab banner and we end up talking about our projects and our work. And I'm always amazed by some of the work that you do. It's like, okay, you do education and you do data and then you're doing these awesome things with systems, you know, um, particularly when it comes to the, you know, health database mm. system. So help me unpack a little bit about the work that you do now. Right. Okay. So the work that I do now, we, if we start from now, essentially I work, <clears throat> how I try to explain to my mom is lots of countries need data to make decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, in particular for things like health, you need to know where there are new outbreaks, where they need nurses, where they need doctors, right? And if your country has a doesn't have maybe a lot of budget for things, like the money goes to actual the care and the people who are doing this, but then that data doesn't get to the right people. At the same time, uh, at a global level, organizations like WHO need to have this data for things like have we managed to eliminate malaria in this country or mm. not? Or are there still people linked with HIV in this place? So... So what happens is that this data in a lot of places still ends up being tallied. Mm. So how many people came today? Five, seven, etc. And this gets put on paper and then these papers get sent to a place mm. and then all those papers get put into another paper and then someone puts that into Excel and the whole process, it's fine when it's like, you know, one clinic maybe, but when we are talking about hundreds of thousands of sites gathering data about lots of things you lose a lot of information mm. uh, you have people who are data officers who are unpaid so then you lose a lot of things so back in the early 90s in south africa some phd researchers from the university of oslo started working in a pilot for this access database for cape town and the surrounding area where people could enter this data on computers. And it became very popular and started spreading. And now, essentially, DHIS2 is the name of the project. Uh, District Health Information Software mm. is the most used health management of information systems in the world, I would say. Uh, and it's an open source software that is free and can be grabbed by anyone. But essentially, you can use it to get your aggregate data or individual level data about health interventions. And what mm. it does is it aggregates it and it kind of 
it gets used to calculate indicators. Mm. Uh, there's you can use it for pretty much anything really. Uh, that implies counting people on what they've been doing, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, it's 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 kind of hard to explain. I find no, I find I... that it gets very boring at parties when <laughs> people ask me what I do. Cause they... No, but I think it's important, right? Because obviously we had the COVID pandemic. Mm. I would I would guess like with such a database and to understanding what's happening, what you're doing essentially is mapping out what's happening and be able to bring it to the decision makers absolutely absolutely yeah. and it's very interesting because when covid started one of the first countries that was really early was sri lanka sri lanka oh. it, it was really early to create a system for contact tracing because you know they're an island they have people coming in and they wanted to make sure that if someone was sick they could trace it out so then that became the basis of this essentially data package that we did that you know, got implemented in many, many countries, including Norway. Mm. So Norway didn't have anything to do contact mm. tracing at the municipal level. So the municipalities, you know, with varying amounts of, you know, budget and resources, uh, didn't, you know, a lot of them were using Excel, others were using paper and Excel, mm. and that kind of thing. So uh, an epidemiologist from Tromsø who had worked with us, right. she was a saint. She was like, guys, can you help me get this implemented? So... The knowledge from, you know, Sri Lanka came back to Norway and was used in Norway essentially as the basis for what they're doing now. That's awesome. Uh, it's pretty awesome, yeah. That is mm. so awesome. It just goes to show, right, if you have, um, t you know, internationals, you know, and utilizing those knowledge from outside and bringing them in, it's such an eye-opening if you open up. Absolutely. Right so. now, right now, what we do is that we have these centers around each country, and some are under the Ministry of Health, some are more private companies, some are under universities, yeah. and a lot of the contracts for, you know, for example, if if Ghana needs something, yeah, we might support a bit, but mostly it's done by people, you know, in Togo or in, you know, any. Yeah. Like the idea is that to bring this, like we develop the software, but then we yeah. empower people to implement it themselves. And to well, just generate this ecosystem of people who are working with this in the region, rather yeah. than rather than being it like yeah north south collaboration. It's more <laughs> right everywhere Everyone's, around. Yeah. So like we had the people from Vietnam help with Honduras's you know uh, COVID certification system, for example. Nice. You know via Rwanda. You know it's wow. it's it's pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, and I th it sounds like when you're talking about it, you light up, and I also feel like in that way. Do you feel like you're thriving and surviving? I've thought a lot about that question. I think that on paper I am thriving. And, you know, honestly, my, my work is very rewarding, even if it's a bit tiring sometimes. Mm. Uh, I work a lot with Latin America, so time zones are a bit different and, you know, have to work nights sometimes and stuff. Uh, so it is it is hard work, but it's also very rewarding to know that what mm. you are doing contributes to, you know, to the greater good at a global scale. Right. I think it's 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 very, very rewarding. Mm. Like my late one of my latest uh, projects was working with other with the World Health Organization on a HIV uh, case surveillance package that's gonna help patient based surveillance of HIV. And that's the kind of thing that I just never imagined I would be able to be involved with. Uh, I never thought that I could contribute at that level, and uh, it just makes me very happy. Yeah, definitely, mm. I, I get a lot of satisfaction from that side. Mm. But yeah, it's been a, a rough couple of years, so I don't know if thriving is. You know, <laughs> uh, I've, I've I've struggled a lot with my mental health in the last couple of years. I would mm. say it's been probably the the worst time inside. Yeah. You know, but you know, when things are like that, one has to find things that you know 
work and mm. make it a little bit better. And I think I get a lot of, I get a lot of uh, like inner reward from both my work and you know, the people around me and all that. Mm. But no, I don't know. I say that it depends on the day. <laughs> today I'm, I'm <laughs> it, it, today I'm pretty happy. Today yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel I could say today I'm thriving. Yeah. Uh, tomorrow we'll see. You know. I, I think mm. it's 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 very common actually you know when I ask this question I mean I'm looking at it myself as well you know I don't think uh, I'm 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 thriving yet you know uh, every day is different you know just yesterday I was um, I had three back-to-back meetings and you know I started off having a really good time and then afterwards like everything just fell apart right. <laughs> basically right. you know what I mean so it's like you know it's it's very very it's very dependent as well. And I remember, you you know, um, before we jumped on to, to the interview, you, you were describing how you were in a loop, tr- even just trying to get a passport. Oh, man. Oh, man. That, like, honestly, I, today I'm very happy because that has more or less been solved. Mm. And that makes me so relaxed. But, yeah, essentially, you know, I am a, a double citizen. I have a Uruguayan citizenship, mm. you know, and Italian citizenship, right? Yeah. Uh, at some point, both my passports expired. You know, I stupidly never renewed my Uruguayan passport for like 10 years <laughs> and my Italian passport expired. Now, Italy has a law that implies that you are unable to renew your passport if your children are not registered. Uh, you also need the authorization of the parent of your children to get a passport. Yeah, I think it's probably because there was some bad stuff happening back in the 50s or something. People were just taking off. Who knows? But that yeah. law is still there. It's from like the 60s, I think. Yeah. So uh, so I was like, okay, this is already complicated. So I went and turns out my marriage was not registered in Italy and my children were not registered. Before I registered my children, I had to register my marriage. Now, I got married in Sweden. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, to, uh, Italian consulates are... Do not do paperwork unless you live in that country and you are registered in their registry of Italians abroad. It kind of they kind of let it slide, so they they would register it. But it Sweden does not have a marriage certificate as an official government document. No way. So the, what they give you is they give you an extract of the population registry. But I was never registered in that population registry. I don't have a Swedish ID number. Only my wife does. So that was a whole thing, just trying to get the Swedish population registry to give me the right number. I mean, like, so that was weird. That took forever. Uh, back and forth, so many emails. Yeah. Uh, I ended up getting my wife to call them, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that helped. And then eventually they accepted that, and I was like, yes. But then I had to register my kids. My kid was born in the UK, so I had to do all the paperwork in the UK, apostille, translation of the apostille, translation, apostille of the translation, uh, because the UK is not in the EU anymore. Same with my other son. That was easy because Norway, you know, (laughs) I just got the apostille on that thing. But that all took, it took like, I think, 10 months. Wow. For the whole process. Yeah. So it, uh, and when yesterday I got an email telling me, hey, you, we, we can get you an appointment. You, we, it, all those papers are sorted. It was like, yeah. The soul came back to my body. Kind of like <laughs> in that episode of The Simpsons when Bart yeah. sells his soul. You know? <laughs> it was a bit like that, yeah. Uh, and for Uruguay, I normally would have been fine to get a passport mm. from there, but the embassy is in Sweden and with Corona, it was very cross. tricky to cross mm. because they were checking paperwork and I didn't have paperwork 
But in the end, I did go to Sweden uh, and they didn't check me and it was fine. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm waiting for my Uruguayan passport now. So I'm going to have two passports. With last week, I had no zero, you know. So how were you, how you were feeling when you were going through all that process of paperwork and documentation and with the COVID hitting? And I, I remember you were mentioning as well that um, you were literally in a in a, an apartment with your wife with two boys running around all the time homeschooling you know you, you don't even have the fees how did you how did you manage and how did you um, what was the feeling that you were going through during that time uh, it was very overwhelming uh, I felt it, it was I still am away like in the tiniest thing mm. will kind of I don't know upset me I guess you can call mm. it and it will send me into like a spiral where I just have to go to bed mm. essentially mm. like I I've I've been a really bad friend, I guess, the last couple of years because I've just kind of ignored everybody because I feel like the wrong thing can just kind of yeah. put me. But in. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you on that because yeah. okay, you remember I moved out of my apartment last yeah. year, right? You came and helped me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that, so you're not true. as bad as a friend, as you say. <laughs> that was <laughs> you know? that was easy moving stuff around. Yeah, that was that was great. It was it was it was very nice. I actually crave I crave people and I crave connection a yeah. lot. But when I it, it is also very tiring. Yeah, if that makes sense. Oh, so yeah. I need no, to be I super. I need to dosify a lot. Whereas before, I was like, yeah, people would invite me to things. Like, yeah, I'm in. You know, yeah. almost instantly. Now I find myself being very, I don't know, greedy with my alone time. Yeah. As if, I don't know, I guess I got used to it from Corona maybe, mm. to sp- spending time like on my own. But I find that if I if I don't, it, it, it just goes bad yeah. eventually. But so, you th- do you think it's, it has a lot to do with um, mental health? You know, I think so, yeah. yeah I think because so. I, I suffer from depression as well, you know, and, and, and anxiety and all that and... You know, I was just saying, like, last year, I, I almost took my own, own life. And, you know, when you're going in that space, hmm. you know, sometimes it's really hard to pick yourself up, you know, to even, like, it's, it's like, even, like, I feel, like, physically almost, like, my arms has, like, I don't know, five kilos of sugar, yeah. like, weighing on me. And it, it becomes so hard for me to to kind of get out. And you kind of want that space because you feel so overwhelmed by it. I don't, for me, it was, like, all the emotions like i don't know what it was but i felt so triggered by certain things mm. either it was happening internally or something happened and it was i had to sit in my own space right to really unpackage all that and you know even last night you know um i haven't even slept that much i had like five hours of sleep just so you know uh and because i was i i find it almost impossible to relax and um I had to wait it out, you know, and then when that happens, it's like, I don't even have enough energy, you know, I have to, mm-hmm. like, sparingly with all my energy. I don't know if that happens to you, but yeah, that's I, kind of my experience. No, I, that, that sounds familiar. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I mean, what was hard was that when I, you know, when I was used to work with students, the first thing I would tell them is like, okay, if you are struggling, talk to someone, go to your doctor, you know, go and get help. So I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do now. Yes, I know the drill. You know, I've told, <laughs> told this to people many times. But then when I tried to do it, it just kind of didn't work. I, I don't feel like I, I got the help that I wanted or needed. I feel like they only paid me attention when I was at the absolute, you know, panic attacks daily. I sleep two hours and I eat. I am broken type space, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And the help I got was they gave me some anxiety pills and sleeping pills. Uh, and that was about it. Uh, so, you know, I think that that was even harder because it was like this idea that, okay, I, I 
there's no help. No. Or maybe there is, but they don't want to give it to me. So, you know. I think, in my personal opinion, having been to therapy sessions here, and they're very inadequate. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about you, but for me, like, <clears throat> they just don't have the kind of standard I was looking for, right. um, and they don't have the tools, the multidisciplinary tools. It's mm. kind of very fixated on this, you know, um, what they called cognitive behavior therapy. Right. And that pretty much every DPS therapist you're going to go for, they they do that, or they administer this, you know, the 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 kind of drugs that you have. And I took them, and I had such a bad reaction. I went cold turkey, and I just stopped, yeah. literally, because it was, like, hurting my head so badly. Um, and then I realized, like, because I'm, I'm studying both trauma at a moment and also the kind of therapies or different tools that they're using, particularly in Canada, I can't really find them here. All this spread out. Right. And that is problematic, I think. I mean, I have one. I mean, the, the one good experience I had with a therapist here mm. was someone, okay, I'm going through this very specific thing. Let's ignore all of my build up <laughs> trauma from my whole life and just focus on this thing that I need to deal with. Right. And that helped. Yeah. But everything else, mm, I don't know. Uh, and also, I don't know enough about therapy and I don't have the time to get into like, right, learning about it. But I do feel like yeah. hmm, I'm, I'm literally in the process of making a PowerPoint presentation that just kind of lists all my trauma to kind of speed up the initial process because I find that yeah. it's just impossible for some Norwegian from Baden to relate yeah. to what I'm going through. So, like, they have no idea. They no, don't understand. Exactly. When I tell them I grew up poor, they don't understand what that means mm. in the context that I. Mm. refer to you know so it, it's really hard i have to i feel like i have to spend several thousands of kroners just to get them up to speed with how the world works and i don't know <laughs> i don't have time for that exactly i, I um, feel like it's so interesting when you said that because it feels like we have to put in the work right where well, they should be doing that in certain ways uh, it feels like um so i've been following dr gamer Mata, and i talk about him a lot because his work have saved my life last year because I couldn't find a therapist with the right qualifications mm. and with my complex PTSD, with all the trauma that I'd gone through. So one of the things that I first did, which, which he kind of recommended, was do an ACE test, which is very easy. You can do this by yourself on a, on a computer. And so if you have the score four or above, you have the statistics here of the amount of percentage of depressions, suicide, you know, um, I can't remember the rest of it. But when I looked at my statistics, so for me, I was about five. Hmm. So I have like the highest. And I'm, the fact that I'm still alive, I have to be proud of myself in that sense. Definitely. So, so for me, like going through that, I'm like, you know, 2,000% of, you know, depression and the 4,000%, you know, you get the statistics wow. of getting this and that, you know. And, you know, this is, this is like a huge study. This was like, hmm. you know, international test. And when I looked at that and I'm like going, wow, now I understand. Right. The trauma has brought me here. All the accumulation of those traumas hmm. has gotten me somewhere. And then how do you work on that then? That was the point. Like, I feel like this is the f problem. Like, the therapists don't understand. Like, okay, you have all this. How do you move forward? And I think one of the things that I realize um, is that how, despite all the things we've gone through, is about being extremely present hmm. in the moments of joy. And I'm still learning it. I'm not saying that I, I know of it, but I think it's like enjoying the small moments, hmm. even when your world is crashing. Yeah. And that having that faith to, to believe that something better is going to come. Right, right, right. 
See, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I still haven't found my full coping strategy and uh, what I can do. I mean, the biggest problem I have is that the moment I remember, oh, yeah, I got to live in the moment, then I'm thinking, oh, crap, I got to live in the moment. How do I live in the moment? Exactly. You know? And <laughs> no, then no, it's I like, it, it's just it. kind of, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, I get it. Am yeah. I not living in the moment? Am I living wrong? You know, and it just kind of spirals down into this thing and I just kind of get paralyzed, I guess. Yeah. Um, I- yeah, sorry. No, 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 no. It's it's fine. It's fine. Uh, I have also tried to do some online therapy, and that helped a bit. It's nice to just tell people, hey, things things are kind of shit. You know, that yeah. just kind of validates yeah. you a little bit, just yeah. to verbalize it. But I, I just, I just, it, it just hasn't been enough. Uh, yeah. And I just wish there was, because it's like honestly, I'd be way more productive if you know. And I assume that that's the same for a lot of people, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but like, yeah, it's like what you said. We are essentially having to subsidize their you know, their ability to deal with diverse people just because we are doing shit. And it's like, no, man, that shouldn't be my job. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Just learn about this in advance. I Uh, almost feel like sometimes the roles reverse. I feel like, like, for me, like, why am I learning so much about trauma and therapy and trying to help myself and I'm still going into DPS system and I'm, like, telling you, this is what I'm reading. Mm. <laughs> have you heard about them? No, yeah. I haven't. Why haven't? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, no, no, no. I have, yeah. I, I'm, I'm still trying to get into DPS. Uh, it's a long waiting list. Yeah, I know, I know, long. I know. But I'm still trying, you know, might as well. Uh, and that, that tells me that at least um, I have some, some fight left in me, uh, the fact yes. that I'm still trying. So that's, that's a good start. But I, I want you to know, like, if you ever get down to that black pit of yours, to ring me. No, oh, thanks, thanks, thanks. Uh, and yeah. I really mean it because, like, I I, I probably I, won't, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> There's no but signal like, on there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But in, in in any case, you know, I'm you know if you know if thank you, you so much. Yeah, it's, so, I really appreciate you know. it. I really appreciate. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I I actually like you know I actually have an app. You know I I'm a bit like this as well. I didn't ask for help. You know and I I go for something and I, I have this app called Wiser and it's a penguin and right. I talk to a penguin <laughs> literally about mm. all my fun and I think it's like the, mm. it's really well done in a certain way like they ask me like my symptoms and what I'm feeling at and then they give me like all these little exercises you do it's like breathing exercises or you know right. what can you do you know little steps and stuff and I think the fact that it was cute just having a penguin <laughs> right 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 well my you know when they t- told me something about you say one fun fact about yourself yeah. my fun fact that I always use that yeah. always surprises people is that I used to have a pet penguin you did. Yeah, I can see your face. You're Sorry. surprised. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, but my, uh, at some point, uh, yeah. a bunch of penguins washed off on the shore uh, oh. back in Uruguay from Antarctica. And uh, and the, the, there was no space in the shelter or whatever. So they we ended up having to take it home until they came pick it up. So for like almost a week, I think, we had a penguin in my house. So that was fun. Oh, that is really cool. Yeah, I bet if that guy was coming here now and talking to me, I'd be not depressed at all. They were super cute. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, I, 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 honestly, I love animals, you know, and it's, uh, having something cute like that is just going to melt your mm. heart, right? You know? And that's, so. that's, one of the, that's one of the cool things about, like, you know, living in South South America, <laughs> that sometimes penguins show up. Yeah. And whales. Yeah. Mm. So you also talked about students, how you were also mm. kind of, like, you know, get you know trying to give them the help that they need and also you you usually are the one as far as i understand you correct me that when international students come over you usually do these introductions um about you know the culture here and you know so can you tell me a little bit about you know 
what do you teach them um, regarding culture shock? Right, okay. And so, I mean, I don't do this anymore. I don't work with students directly anymore, but for many years, uh, I have worked with educational institutions and mm-hmm. I have worked with, you know, you know, as the token foreigner, I end up working with the international students because, you know, it's fun. Um, so one of the things we did was the start of the semester, we would, you know, have mm. like a big orientation meeting and mm. and with time we kind of developed this uh, presentation a series of presentations and workshops about this stuff mm. uh, and I guess I guess the main thing that I tell them about is the is about the gap mm. uh, the gap between expectation and reality mm. right now I don't know if you've heard of this dude called Hofstede it's a he's a, like a Dutch Dutch sociologist right mm. and he kind of does this like analogy about culture as being the software of the mind right yeah. like you know it's like this this process that's running in your head that you know it's constantly evolving and of course you know culture is not just your country it's like your social class it's like your religion it's like you know lots of things right mm. i guess you could say that if you and i have an inside joke uh we have like our own mini culture between us essentially yeah. right that we both that's a set of rules that, you know, we understand and we know how it works. Right. Right? Uh, and the problem with culture is that we, if unless we reflect about it, we don't even know that it's there. Mm. Right? So, like, you know, if you Google sandwich, for example, you get a very clear picture. You get bread, something in between, like meat or lettuce, tomato, and then bread again. Yeah. But if you Google Norwegian sandwich... <laughs> You get bread and you get something on top and then there's like nothing. There's <laughs> air on top, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. like, an, like an open sandwich right. as it turns out they're called. Yeah. But I remember the first time someone offered me, do you want a sandwich? Yeah. And they gave it to me and I'm like, where's the rest of the sandwich? <laughs> Which is, you know, it's right. a sandwich is fine. Yeah. Right. You're going to survive. There's less bread. I actually don't mind. Yeah. Uh, but, but there's definitely a gap between what you expect and what you get. Mm. And that gap kind of, you know, makes you a tiny bit uncomfortable right. uh, for a microsecond because then you eat the sandwich and you you don't think about it. But when that gap appears in things like bureaucracy or friendships or relationships or love or work, power dynamics, mm-hmm. I think that that gap can become very problematic and difficult to mm-hmm. deal with when you think that you are doing your best and then it's mm-hmm. perceived as if you are not when you think that you are behaving completely normally according to the programming of your mind, mm. but then super strange for other people, mm. that, that, that's culture shock. Mm. That's, that's that gap between your culture, their culture, and the space between it, if that makes sense. Mm. Does that ring a bell to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I totally resonate every part of that. Right. And, I, and I think it's like, you know, how does you how does the students that we tell this uh, to them? How do they react? Honestly, yeah. w- with students, it's it's they they, they think it's funny because I just tell lots of jokes and stories about <laughs> times where I've experienced culture shock. And when right. I tell them this is not, I'm not teaching you anything. I'm just right. giving you a vocabulary to know that this is a thing. Right. Because a lot of people have not thought about it. Yeah. Have not yeah. thought about the fact that they are weird as hell. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, if you were to teleport yourself to a completely different environment with Mm. a completely different set of values, traditions, everything you do will be weird. And that just makes sense. As long most people still think of themselves as normal. Mm. They still think of themselves as standard or average because they are embedded in that. Yeah. 
zeitgeist culture, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, so their reaction is initially it's funny, some skepticism, uh, because they're at the start, right? So mm. then they don't know what to expect unless they have had those experiences in other places, right? right. What it's more fun, I think, is when I talk to people who have been a while mm. in here. Right, so mm. I've been here a while, and then they're like, <gasps> because suddenly I can. It's and it's so <laughs> rewarding to see the pieces fall and kind of get together, and them understanding a lot of those frustrations that they've been experiencing. Mm. You know, like how oh wow, this is a thing. <laughs> you know, I am weird. They are weird. Oh, that and 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 I give them some very specific examples. You know, more or less focused on Norwegian culture. You know, which could be probably out, you know, uh, what's it called, uh, extrapolated to like a lot of Northern Europe, for example. Mm. But you know, it, it, it's very rewarding. Uh, some of the feedback I've gotten is like, uh, I, someone told me recently, I wish I had known this when I started, so I would have been ready for when it came, because mm. you know, you just expect it to be the same. Like when I went to Paraguay, Uruguay, Paraguay, they're not. <laughs> Next to each other, <laughs> like most people assume. Uh, I actually didn't realize how different it would be. I was like very young back then. Uh, it was the first time I lived for a long time mm. out of my country. And it was, to me, it was quite impressive how countries are so close, could be so different culturally. Mm. Uh, and I think that's that's the same everywhere. I think everyone would benefit from some awareness that their culture is not the culture it's right. just a culture um, how do you navigate those gaps then because you you, you seem hmm. very very aware of those gaps and right. obviously for your work as well you know working with so many different you know countries as well you know how do you navigate that culture gap with them and also within your own life here you know how do you right 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 I, I think it's it's less that you navigate than more like you you weather the storm right because <laughs> you don't have you have very little control about what's gonna give you an emotional reaction at first right. uh, I, I think the most important thing is being aware of it mm. like you know when I was visiting Ghana and suddenly they started praying in a meeting with lots of people it was very shocking to me because I did not expect that one no. right uh, as someone who used to be religious and now I'm very kind of skeptic of religion when suddenly they started praying in a meeting with lots of different countries and government officials, I was just very confused because I, I didn't expect it. Mm. If I more or less do my research and learn more about a place before I go and understand the expectations, when things come, it's a little bit less shocking because, yes, there is a gap between what I expect and what I get, but mm. I knew that was coming, mm. right? And right. I think that that is something that is beneficial to anyone to try to get embedded in that how cultures are with with the caveat that stereotypes exist and they are not necessarily true. Mm. They're useful and they can give you like a direction, but mm. they're just not necessarily true. Mm. Um, I guess another thing is just being aware of the power dynamic when navigating cultural differences, right? And there's this guy from Germany, Willy Brand. He was like a chancellor of Germany and there's a quote that I use a lot from him. He says... Uh, if I'm selling, I'll speak English. But if I'm buying, dann müssen Sie Deutsch sprechen, right? If, and 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 it's that it's that dynamic. If you if if I'm buying, speak to me in Spanish. Then you need to change. 
Mm. But if I'm selling, then I'm going to make the effort and, and change. Mm. The, 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 f- the tricky thing is what is selling and what is buying. Right. And as an immigrant from a poor country, somehow you always end up automatically in the I'm selling bracket and you end up feeling that you are the one who has to adapt, if mm. that makes sense. Uh, which I don't think it's necessarily true. I mean, I used to think that, I think. I used to think that, you know, as a newcomer, it's my duty to adapt and, you know, now I'm like, screw that. You know, <laughs> I'm tired of that thing. I'm tired of that. I'm tired of having all this internalized xenophobia. I'll adapt to what is reasonable and the rest, you do your homework or I just don't care. Honestly, I'm too tired. I love that. Mm. I, I think I've got into that stage as well in my life, mm. you know, here. And I've been here for 10 years. You've been here nine years. So it was, you know, similar in that sense that, you know, I think we we've done quite a lot already to kind of understand the culture and to kind of adapt. And I feel like now is the time that they need to learn a little bit, you know, and it's not on the weight shouldn't be on us. Um, and I think like, oh, I don't know uh, how should I put this, but. I really like the way you talked about power dynamic there because mm-hmm. I think that people are not aware, oh, yeah. especially mm-hmm. particularly when I talk to Norwegians. Um, I don't know. It, it feels like often like they're in a knee-jerk reaction if I said something. And I, I don't know how about you, but every single Norwegian I've ever met that knowing like I moved here, the qu- first question they usually ask me, is do you know again? Right. Do you like it here in Norway? I was like, do you know how complicated yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to answer that yeah. question? It's like, do you want the real, real, real truth answer? Or should I give you the, you know, just a quick one to kind of get, uh, <laughs> get yes, over this conversation? Yes, you know? yes. And, you know, usually, yeah, I, 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 I hope my God. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. That is, a, that is a question I have gotten many times. Uh, and I think I've answered it differently every time. But I remember one time where I, okay, so... With culture shock, there's lots of research that says there are different phases right. of how you experience culture shock, mm-hmm. right? So the first phase is acceleration, and you're very excited because you're in a new place and everything's new and you're trying to figure things out, and the trains run on time and it's great, you know? <laughs> uh, and then it kind of varies a bit, right? And then you talk about, at the at the end of the whole process, you talk about either being survivalist and apathetic, Mm. or adaptive and, uh, you know, strategizing how to, you know. So, so so I find like I bounce between those two a lot, mm. you know. And during Corona, being more on the everything is shit side. But, but one time I was very much on the survivalist, apathetic mindset mm. of screw this. And someone asked me that and I'm like, actually, no. I kind of really tired and I kind of hate it right now. And then they was like, oh, okay. And they didn't say anymore. <laughs> I think he was not expecting I would say that. I think no. he was expecting that I would say that Norway is the best place. And I love it. And give me some waffle with Brunos. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I didn't. Because yeah. it seems like you're, you have quite an international background. And you have been like living in various different countries. Mm. Do you think like Norway will be your, your home future? I mean, I think Norway has been, even with all the things that I complain about, Norway has been very kind to me. I have been very lucky. I have a a nice Mm. network here. Uh, My children are from here, and they, you know, they are very international themselves, but they're also very Norwegian. My Mm. wife is from here and has her business here. 
I mean, yeah, I think that <laughs> Norway is the place, other than Uruguay, Norway is the place I spend the most time in. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's like, I, I try, I've tried to coin the term Oslo syndrome many times. Mm. You know, you know, Stockholm syndrome. Oh, and, you yeah. know, if you're, you fall <laughs> in love with your kidnapper kind of, and you kind of develop these bonds and then you kind of stay with them. Mm. Well, I feel like Oslo is a bit like that for immigrants. Like, you know, you have a hard time, you have lots of troubles with your bureaucracy but then there's something special about this place there's something special mm. that to me it really makes it feel both very unwelcoming and very much home you know mm. maybe it's one of those weird trauma attachment things or something but <laughs> o- oslo syndrome you know yeah. that should if in t- 30 years people say that i, I started it just okay to say. yeah this this podcast is gonna go viral oh, just totally. so we, because we just you know, invented the term, or rather you invented the term. What would you like the listeners to leave? Right. What were the takeaway messages that okay. you, know, I think, you wanna... I think a uh, very important thing, I think a very important thing to remember is that you are a weirdo. And you need to understand that. Every time you say, ah, oh, but why do they do that like that? Yeah, sure, that's a valid question to ask, and you should ask it, but... Do you ask yourself, why do I do this this way? Have you gone through the process of looking at your culture from a completely blank point and and just and I'm talking about everything. Why do you have breakfast? Have you take what what is it that you take for granted about your identity and consider it a standard that maybe is not? Because I feel like it's very hard to understand why people in wherever your host country is are not taking you seriously Mm. uh, when you have not gone through that process yourself. And I think that once you do that, once you grab aspects of your personality, your culture, and go through that process of dissecting them and trying to objectively see, is this good? Do I actually want this? Do I need this? Mm. Or is this just something that I inherited from my parents and their parents and their parents and I don't want anymore, Mm. you know? And I think that going through a process will, on the one hand, help you have a little more empathy. And I'm not saying you, you specifically. I'm saying you, the, <laughs> I the, the, that. the, yeah. the why yeah. you, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that will help you have a little bit mm. more empathy as to why people sometimes find it difficult to relate to people from other cultures. Mm. And at the same time, give you some tools that will help you call people out when they are doing those things. Mm. And another thing I wish someone had told me when I started this whole you know, going to other places, is that there are things that have no place in any culture. Xenophobia, racism, sexism, those things need to be called out. And just because you're a newcomer, it doesn't mean that you have any less power or ability to call people out on those things. Mm. It doesn't matter where you're from. If someone's being a dick, they're being a dick. I need to Mm. tell them. Yeah. And I, I wish I had known that before because I think that I let a lot of things slide at first because I felt, oh, yeah, but I'm new here. I, oh, I guess yeah. I don't get it or something. No, it's not that you don't get it. It's just that that person's being a dick and they need to be told, mm. I guess. I guess that's <laughs> that's word of words of wisdom, I guess. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I love all that. And I think it's so, so true and I resonate with it so much. So, um, again, thank you so much for your wisdom and sharing your story and journey with us. It's been um um, it's just been a pleasure talking to you. No, so. absolutely. Finally, now we don't have to talk on the metro anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're staying here. Yeah.